Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, the lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute. Yeah, we've got a fun episode today planned, don't we, David? Anyway, I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute. I'm also a constitutional attorney, though I'm not going to be speaking in that capacity today or ever on this podcast. I, I find it very interesting that you just sort of buried a question for me in uh, the millisecond before you moved on, but that's fine. Anyway, before we <laughs> You're begin- You're not going to answer? No, I don't think so. You didn't really give me the chance, so it's on your own head. Anyway, David before doesn't we... think it's an interesting episode. He thinks it's a boring one. Yeah, that's right. Before we begin, please note that all opinions expressed in this podcast, including that one that it's going to be a boring episode, are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute. The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you want to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, I highly recommend that one, please visit our website, LexRex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. And as a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. And, you know, as even Alexis de Tocqueville noted, in the U.S., legal issues invariably tend to become political ones. And today, we now have more issues that are considered political than ever before. So we think it's especially important to distinguish between the two. That's one of our major goals and projects on this podcast. Our name, Lex Rex, is Latin for the law is king, because we believe that there's really only two options in America. Either the law is king or man is king. And you really don't want the latter one to be true. So that's our name, Lex Rex, law is king. We want to keep everybody accountable to the law. So, David, interesting episode, right? Uh, I guess that depends on what you think about French revolutionary history, but that is one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Well, I was just thinking, because it's a podcast about American law, it's a little bit weird, but we're spending half the episode talking about France and French law. Well, to be fair, it's probably going to be more than half, but that's, you know, the point oh, is... Oh, that makes it less weird. You're right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. For those of you who were listening a few weeks ago when we did our 4th of July episode, one of the things we're going to be doing this summer is comparing the French Revolution and, you know, what has come to be called the American Revolution, as you pointed out earlier, wasn't common to call it that until after the French Revolution had begun. Yeah, we're not real but, fond of that term. We really prefer American War of Independence, American Independence Movement. Because yeah. that's what it was. We became independent. We did not revolt. We were yeah. the law abiders. They were the ones revolting. And it was quite revolting. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, is that a joke about British teeth? But anyway. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think is misguided about a lot of American education is that we tend to get taught that you know, the, the American Revolution and the French Revolution go hand in hand. They're basically the same thing. Maybe the French went a little too far. We'll get, you know, into some of that today, probably. And but part of that's, you know, part of that's understandably due to the fact that some of our founding fathers, not all, not even most really, but some of our founding fathers spoke favorably of the early stages of the French Revolution when yeah. it still could have gone that direction. Uh, and yeah. that's those comments have sort of not aged particularly well. <laughs> yeah, but... One of the things that we're going to be looking at is why it's probably not actually a very close comparison at all. And we'll get into that a little bit later. 
When we started off with the America side of things, we were looking at the Declaration of Independence. Later in this episode, we'll be looking at the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. But we'll take a look later on this episode. If you want to learn more about the philosophical <laughs> foundations of our Constitution, the good Constitution, you know, good <laughs> philosophical foundations, check out our website, LexRex.org. We've got a store there where if you make a contribution to us of, I think, starting as low as $20, you can get a free book uh, that is really goes into American law, the foundations of American law. I recommend John Locke, uh, the Constitution Declaration of Independence themselves, or we've also got a more modern one, so less philosophical foundations, but uh, Gorsuch's A Republic If You Can Keep It. So without further ado, we're also discussing one case today. Uh, David, what's that case? We'll be talking first about Carson v. Macon, and we are, I, I'm assuming it's Macon and not Mackin or something like that. It'd be kind of dumb in my opinion if it's pronounced that way because it's spelled M-A-K-I-N, so we're going to go with Macon. But this is another one. It's where, making me crazy. Oh, man, that's bad. Um, <laughs> I really want to cut that. I think I'm going to cut that. But Don't cut that. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, uh, this is another instance where we're, we're playing a bit of catch up, as we mentioned in the last couple of episodes. Some huge news at the court pushed some things we were going to talk <laughs> yeah. about earlier. One of this the, one, probably the most significant Supreme Court term in any of our lifetimes, whether yeah. you like it, whether you hate it. A lot happened, and we're yeah. going to be playing catch-up on that for a little while. Yeah. So this is another one that just about decided literally a month before we're talking about it. A decision on this one came down on, oh, actually quite literally a month since we're doing this a day early, actually. It was decided on June 21st, but... Yeah, we're actually doing this a day early because I'm flying out to D.C. again, this time for a gala at the Supreme Court where I'm actually going to meet some of the justices that should be exciting. Hopefully we'll have pictures for you guys from that. So watch ahead for what's coming in LexRex News because that's sort of a big deal. Yeah. Well, with, you know, without further ado, I guess we should get into it. Carson v. Macon was another First Amendment free exercise issue. You know, we've talked about one, maybe two others earlier on this podcast. We had the Kennedy one. case. That was first. Yeah. yeah, that was debatably. I mean, they turned out to be free exercise, also free speech. But Yeah, but that one was huge for sort of the specific jurisprudence around First Amendment issues. This one wasn't quite as significant in that direction, but I think still a noteworthy decision. So basically what happened in this case is that the state of Maine has a program that offers tuition relief to students in remote parts of the state. And there are lots of remote parts of the state. I don't know how many have been to Maine, but not a lot of civilization once you get into some of those further reaches, but students in remote areas where the school, or excuse me, where the state does not actually operate public schools. And there are, you know, more than a few of Sounds those Sounds like areas. heaven. Well, <laughs> anyway, so the idea- Somewhere that being, doesn't have public schools. Hey, if you've been following Lex Rex at all, you know about all the litigation we have against public schools right now. Some of these public schools set themselves up as almost petty fiefdoms where- School administrators view themselves as fief lords and do whatever the heck they want. We're going to hold them accountable, though. So watch our All news right. for that. I'm going to keep saying that about everything tonight. I think. Yeah, pretty much. Also, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with what the word fiefdom means, which, again, you know, that's one that you probably don't need to know. But it's uh, where man is king, not you know, the law. Uh, you know, a little a little lordship, a little place where, you know, yeah. some nobleman rules. Where man anyway. is king. It's very opposite of what we're advocating <laughs> for. So <laughs> anyway. You know, and we support 
you know, parents who, as uh, you know, we, we had a piece up recently, or rather you had a piece up recently about one of our current cases that involves a public school and to make it plain on the record, we support parents who want to use public schools. We support parents who don't want to use public schools, but in either case, we will stand up for the rights of parents and their children yeah. in their schools. We actually so, offer a lot of homeschool curriculum for homeschoolers because, you know, homeschooling is great too. I think homeschooling is a great idea you know, for people who are able to do that, but that's not everyone. And the fact that, yeah. you know, homeschooling might be a great option doesn't mean that we should just resign our public schools to wherever the heck they're going to go. So we're going to fight yeah. back on that. That's the Boyle case. It's actually been kind of a big media issue over the past couple of weeks. I think Fox News has mentioned that case of ours pretty much every night. I appeared on Fox last week to talk about that. It's yep. a ridiculous case. I mean, that's why it's gotten as big as it has in the media. And it should be a very significant case. So that's one to keep your eyes on. Yeah. But anyway, and here's another. Sorry, David, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you want to hear more details about that, because we, you know, we don't really have the time to get deep into the weeds on that case here. But if you want to know more, there's information on our website. Again, that's lexrex.org. You can also look us up on YouTube and find, I think, at least the clip of you on Fox and maybe some other things I can't remember off the top of my head. But I anyway, think there's, we try to put a lot of this stuff up there if we can get recordings of it. So yeah, yeah. take a look there. I'm sure there's stuff on the Boyle case. Yeah. Anyway, so, but back to-, to I, Yeah, I Maine. was saying, you were talking about how there's some parts of Maine that don't have government schools. <laughs> and I said, sounds like heaven. And I led yeah. into a bit of a tangent. So where were you, right. David? Anyway, so the idea is they offer this program, the state of Maine does, to- Parents of children who live in those districts can't use a public school. So, you know, to help offset the cost of tuition at private schools, or in some cases, I think just to cover transportation to a public school, they, they have public assistance for that. Now, yeah, people the, are paying taxes to support the schools yeah. because it doesn't matter. Even if you live out in the boonies where there are no public schools, you still pay taxes for them. So they right. wanted to make sure people were getting some benefit. Right. Now, the case in question arose when a couple of families who wanted to send their children to Christian schools were denied access to those funds. And basically, the state said, we specifically exclude, I think they use the word sectarian schools yeah. from this program. Yeah. And that, that's, that's based on some real old establishment clause jurisprudence. Remember, establishment clause says that Congress shall not establish a religion. Remember, established churches or basically state churches. So state endorsements of religion, states doing things to benefit religious causes can be read as state churches, state endorsements of religion. Uh, that's the lemon test. We talked about the lemon test before. That's actually yeah. gone now. And this case is, well, it's free exercise and an establishment clause case. Most of them tend to be because those of at least during the 20th century, been viewed as sort of two opposites need to be balanced against each other. Right. Uh, but yeah, David, what's the issue in this particular case? So, you know, basically the challenge came down to these parents saying, we have a right to make use of this public program, which exists to help educate children. We want to be able to use that benefit where we choose to. And the state disagreed. And it ended up for the Supreme Court and ultimately, they decided 6-3. So this is one of those ones that tends to split, you know, what you could call the right and left wings of the court. The dissenting yeah. votes were Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Breyer. That's a pretty typical, you know, quote unquote, left wing arrangement. And I just want to be clear, that's not necessarily because of political differences among the justices. Right. 
people who are originalists, have an originalist view of the Constitution, tend to be a lot more suspect of balancing tests, where you look at one interest, you look at another interest, and you try to balance the two of them. They tend to be a lot more strongly in favor of sort of absolutizing rights, that this right's going to apply in all circumstances. We're not going to balance it against other interests. And you can see why that would produce the result that it did in this case. If you're balancing the interests in the state not endorsing religion against basically the interest in these people being able to educate their children as they see fit and get the benefit of their tax dollars, you can see why somebody might fall on the side of we're just going to steal your money and give you no benefit. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, still don't think that I would go there, <laughs> but I can see why somebody might. Whereas if you view the, the idea of free exercise of religion as absolute, obviously not going to go there. So that's how it's yeah. split, but not necessarily for political reasons. Yeah. You know, and at some point we, we might want to devote an entire episode to this topic, but for various reasons, originalism has tended to be associated with political conservatism. But as you point out, that's not necessarily an intrinsic link. No, not at all. And not in know, the slightest, actually. Well, we can we, we can maybe talk about I mean, that. You, you could say some that point. some originalist judges would not be originalists if they didn't expect that the Constitution was largely going to endorse conservative principles. But the two are not related. Yeah, not, not in a strict sense, certainly. Anyway, so... As I said, 6-3 decision came down in favor of these parents who wanted to, you know, have access to public funds for this purpose. And so basically the decision hinged on the idea as basically the, as the opinion of the court stated that you cannot discriminate against a school specifically because it is a religious school. Right. Because this, this could go to non-religious, non-sectarian private schools. Right. So. By crafting the law such that it denied private schools that were religious of the same thing that non-religious private schools were getting, well, that's discrimination against religion. Yeah. Just plain and simple. Yeah. And there were noises that were made in in the press and around the case itself about, well, you know, the state wants to make sure that particular points of the curriculum are are met or rather or that. That's a separate issue, though. They, They can still have standards that have to be met by any accredited school. Right. In fact, they, they could even condition, I, I don't know if the law was written this way, but many similar laws are written such that they condition the, the receipt of, a lot of times they're called vouchers. This is not technically a voucher program, but the condition the receipt of voucher money on adherence to certain state guidelines. Yeah. They can do and, that. That's not an issue. Yeah. And I believe they did that in this case. I think more or less the only qualification was that the schools needed to be accredited and that they needed to be, again, non-quote-unquote sectarian. But, you know, it was raised by the other side, though, that these sorts of funds were available for people who wanted to use Montessori schools or other sort of non-traditional models for schooling. Why should this be different other than that someone... And we talked about this... And it's it's a little crazy, too, because presumably I could start a school and call it the Classical Education Academy that just wholesale copies and pastes the sort of Thomistic, Aristotelian approach to study, which is a very intensely Roman Catholic approach to to learning, you know, to education. But if I don't call it a Roman Catholic school, it doesn't matter that I'm using that method, that would be fine. It's specifically the identification with a religious institution that made it illegal under that law. Yeah. You know, it... it I think it comes down to a very similar to thing, similar thing to an issue that we talked about in the 
case that involved the city of Boston. I forget what the other party's name was in that case. That was the other. Oh, that's ex- right. That was free the expression other one. case. I've forgotten. Yeah, that was, that was a, sort of a, a gimme, like a. Oh yeah, and you know, I that, think that, that one was really obvious how it was going to go because that, that was the one where they said that every single other flag was fine to fly outside the, the Boston City Hall, mm-hmm. except for a Christian flag. Yeah. Basically, what it came down to in that case was someone saying the fact that you want to use this flagpole to display a religious symbol would innately entangle the city in endorsement of religion and therefore we can't allow it. Seems like which, which is just such I mean, just think for a second. That's such a strange way of running our country. Yeah. That, you know, basically, if there's anything religious that touches anything government, oh, that's forbidden. Yeah. You know, it's not about the government actually saying something that would lead a reasonable person to, which is that, that's Senator Dale O'Connor's test, by the way, is whether or not the affirmation is something that would lead a reasonable person to believe that the government was endorsing a particular religion, which, you know, I've got my criticisms of that test, but for all its faults, even under that test, I, there's just no way. Yeah, but I... I forget who you quoted, but you quoted someone to the effect, might have been actually Justice Gorsuch now that I'm thinking about it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but someone said basically, you know, the the reasonable person test in the case of religion comes down to imagine a, a person who's as grumpy and anti-religion as you want him to be, yeah. and then <laughs> yeah, that was just great. think about how He's mad offended at everything. Yeah. <laughs> think about how mad he, he might be if he saw something yeah. like this. That's, so not rather than a reasonable person, it's a... You know, particularly ownery, anti-religious person who views everything as an affirmation or endorsement of certain causes. Yeah. And I I think basically the the same sort of train of thought must have been going through whoever designed this program's head in Maine, you know, whatever group in their legislature. Yeah. Well, it's because of the lemon test. It's so many jurisdictions designed laws looking at the lemon test and saying, gee, we really don't want to provoke lawsuits under lemon. Because remember, we talked about the three prongs of lemon before. I don't want to get too much into detail today into those. But basically, it's excessive entanglement with religion. Neither advances nor inhibits religion. Very, very vague stuff. Things that you can read virtually anything as being a government endorsement of religion under lemon. And they didn't want lawsuits. They knew those lawsuits would likely lose, but they said he's don't like being sued. States don't like being sued. So they tended to craft laws in such a way that they were really taking Lemon into account. So now that Lemon's gone, they don't have to do that anymore. That's kind of nice. Yeah, I'm guessing lots of people will still try to craft similar sorts of laws for other reasons, whether just inertia or otherwise. But, you know, I think it's now very likely that they will lose all those challenges even earlier and harder than they often did in the past. Yes. (laughs) A couple of things I want to note before we move on, and we probably should shortly here because I'm guessing we're probably going to go a bit late on the French Revolution part of this episode. But well, I, we're I, going with metric hours. Metric hours are a little bit longer. That's oh, yeah, more than twice as long. Um, as, yeah, as regular ones because <laughs> it's ten that's, hours in a day. So we're, we'll keep this podcast oh under an hour if you're measuring under the continental system. Well, they, you know, they don't keep using that. We can just call it the... They use the same system. They just threw out part of it. Well, all right, fine. No, scientists today, the metric system scientists today use is the same system. They just took out the parts that we rely on daily because it became apparent more quickly that those didn't work well. Well, 
Yeah. All right. <laughs> maybe maybe we should do a bonus episode that, that you can just air all your grievances with the metric system. Because no, but... the whole point of the metric system is a, a calorie is what heats one cubic centimeter of water by one degree. Oh, and a cubic centimeter of water is the same thing as a milliliter. It's supposed to all convert across the right. entire system. So they just ad hoc took parts of it out. As I said, maybe a bonus episode where I'll just, I won't say anything. You can just talk about the metric system to your heart. I'd love that, David. I would love that. And then we will release it. I'm not a big fan of the metric system. I measure in feet because I have feet. I don't have meters. We will release that episode to no one. And uh, we could put it on Patreon. We could have a paid access. Yeah, if someone wants to pay $10,000 to hear you rant about the metric system. Yeah, there's got to be an exact interval of 10, though. They can't pay any. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) metric money. Yeah. Anyway, before we get into all that, to try to stay somewhat on task here, Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion of the court, and he I did not read all of the dissent, but he mentioned this part of the dissent. So this is a lot better than his opinion in Sibelius that we talked about, right? Remember, that was on our Hall of Shame a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. He doesn't always get him wrong. No, but apparently the dissent argued that states should be free to pursue and you know have as as an objective of their laws greater separation of church and state than the constitution itself requires and robert's response to that was okay maybe but is that are we going to call that a compelling interest which would have been required that's in this also case? you know in, in a vacuum if you were just looking at the establishment clause yeah that's true but there's another clause right next to that yeah called the free exercise clause, and they aren't allowed to violate that. So yeah, they can have greater separation between church and state than the constitution requires. That's totally fine. But it can't run afoul of people's rights to freely exercise their religion. Yeah. As I said, you know, we've been talking, well, not on the podcast, but in our other materials, we've been sort of focused for a little while now due to some of the cases we have on issues of public education. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that it's important to pay attention to what the public schools do, how they approach certain issues, because there's this sort of vague assumption that I think a lot of people have that whatever is you know going on in a public school is going to be neutral, neutral. in some fashion. Yeah. And just that the is, facts. Yeah. And that is a dangerous assumption for a number of reasons. You know, that's a very French assumption. Yeah, and at some point, well, actually, <laughs> yes and no on that point, actually. Ed, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I, I agree with you on, on uh, at a certain point in their history, yes, that was the case. They've actually more or less recognized that they still do, in fact, have a state religion. It's just that their state religion now state secularism. is secularism. Yeah, and, well, I'm talking about the uh, French Revolution period where yeah. the goddess reason was... You know, arguably that's installed not, at Notre Dame. And, that, it, arguably, you know, that's sort of intrinsically non-neutral either. If you're saying not only are we going to be reasonable, but we're going to worship reason where we I used think to that, well, have I a mean, church. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, you would think, you would mm-hmm. really think that anybody who says that would recognize that's not a neutral position. Yeah. I'm, their rhetoric to me suggests otherwise. Yeah. But so, you know, many listeners are probably going to remember at least vaguely that France implements certain policies, make certain decisions that sometimes make the news, basically clamping down forcefully on people's religious expression in public places. You know, they, they tried to ban Muslim women from wearing certain kinds of 
of like full body swimsuits because that's that's a, a display of religion that's contrary to French values and they have to wear bikinis. Or, a secular you know, person would never do that. <laughs> we have state secularism, so you can't do it. Yeah, or forbidding students from wearing either head coverings if they were if they were Muslim kids in schools or, you know, a, a crucifix if it's too big and too ostentatious. This sort of thing crops up periodically and it's because they have as basically a positive principle of their society that you need to avoid religious display actively. And, and it's I, not I, enough. I do think that's how the, for lack of a better way of putting it, how, how the liberal wing of the Supreme Court tends to view our establishment clause. Yeah. And, you know. Is, if we can't have an establishment of religion, well, that means that we have established. Irreligion. I, I don't want to say, because yeah. it's not as strong as the French position, but no. like a, a sort of a soft secularism. Yeah. At some point, I'm guessing we'll probably go through specific parts. I'm, I'm sure, you know, if we do this podcast long enough, we're probably going to end up doing episodes on different clauses in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights and so forth. We'll probably end up talking specifically about the First Amendment at some point. But suffice it to say for now, that's Yeah, that's not, probably a safe bet. First Amendment is yeah. a big one. But suffice <laughs> it to say for now, though, that that is just not at all how the framers of the Constitution would have understood the, no. you know, no. the, the First Amendment to work. And anyway, it's no information is neutral. Everybody has an agenda. They may not even know what that agenda is, but everybody has a perspective. And that perspective is going to bleed through into what they're doing. And it's, we're, we actually have a really great video coming out on this. It's been coming mm. out for a little while. It's taken a while to, in the editing process, but that's one that David wrote. That's going to be a really good one. So keep your eyes out for that. I think it's called, what is it called, David? Well, the, the title will probably change because I couldn't think of a good catchy one. But basically, you know, watch State out. State an interest group, I think is what you called it, right? Yeah. And that, that's probably not what we're going to publish it under. But uh, keep an because eye out for it. Because everybody's an interest group. Yeah. Keep an eye everybody out for it. Everybody has interests. Nobody is completely disinterested. Right. Keep that in mind when looking at information. Anyway, exactly. that, that's this case. Anything else to say about that case? Or do you want to move on to the next I subject? Think even if I do have more to say, we should probably move on because we don't want to be here all night and we don't want to make these people suffer through another yeah. There's a lot of issues we've hit episode. before. That's why we tended to stray a bit on that one. Yeah, how disappointing has that got to be? This, this would have been a huge case in any other Supreme Court term. I can't imagine. Yeah. For the lawyers that brought this case, you know, they, they got to the Supreme Court on an issue that's of major national import. And there's three others on the same issue, the same term, yeah. all of which are more important. By the time they hear yours, Lemon's already been overturned. Yeah. Like that's So at, at best... The most notoriety that came out of this is I think it probably inspired a few extra people to tweet something about how the Supreme Court is trying to gut separation of church and state, which is pat nonsense. But nonsense. You know, anyway. <laughs> yeah. And it's, right. you, to be clear, I think probably people on the more right wing end of things tend to think separation of church and state, you know, they like to repeat, so that's not found in the Constitution. That's found nowhere in the Constitution. It's an un yeah. unconstitutional concept. It's only in Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. That's absolutely true. It is not found in the Constitution. However, I think the concept of separation of church and state is actually a very constitutional concept. I think it sort of underlies the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. I think yep. the mistake that those people are making is actually the same mistake people on the left are making. They're essentially treating the words religion and church as synonymous. Yeah. Separation of church and state does not mean separation of religion and state. Separation of church and state refers to institutional separation of the two. You know, yeah. that the Roman Catholic bishop is not going to have an automatic position within our government, that somebody in our government doesn't automatically get to be a pastor of a church. 
Those things are separate institutions. Churches are one building totally separate from the government. Governments in a totally different building, totally separate from the, the church. That's separation of church and state. Nothing to do with separation of religious principles and state. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's sort of the broad takeaway for First Amendment religion clauses. I don't know why that's so misunderstood, but that's worth correcting before we move on. So now at this point, moving on to Declaration of the <laughs> Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Yeah. And so before we get into that document proper, I think a little bit of historical background is probably necessary. And there's tons here. You know, this is obviously a, a, a massively important event in the history of the world. If for no other reason than the, you know, the French weren't content to have their own revolution without trying to make everyone else in Europe have their own revolution afterward. So huge fallout from all of these things. But, we'll, you know, to keep it very quick and basic. It's, you, it's, you know, it's to the point where the vast majority of the modern world, at least politically speaking and legally speaking, can be traced back to the French Revolution in some form or another. Yeah. It's one of the most, if not the most significant political events in the past 500 years. Yeah. Anyway, so to, to sort of set the stage briefly, there's a few things I think are important to know. One is that you know, we talked before about how the what is called the British Constitution is mostly unwritten. There are some written documents that are part of it, but in large part, it's sort of just the acknowledged traditions of, of British law and government. In France, you basically don't even have that. <laughs> People will talk about whether or not something is constitutional occasionally, but by that, they mostly just mean like nobody remembers it not being this way. So you have to do it this way. And that leads to just sort of a lot of it's like saying it's against my constitution. You know, if, it, <laughs> if you're overweight or read a lot, maybe it's against your constitution to run. That's that's sort of the way that it works in France. It's, it's against yeah. their constitution to do certain things. And the monarchy, despite, you know, the fact that in, in it struggled at the time in France to actually effectively impose its will in theory and, you know, in certain circumstances, it remained an absolute monarchy. So, for example... They had, you know, sort of regional high courts. But you're saying they're an absolute monarchy today? No, I said at the time, didn't I? Oh, I sorry, I, I must have missed that. Okay, yeah, no. The, yeah, because I think is, they just got a pretender today. I don't think that they no, recognize Fr a king at all. France is not a monarchy of any sort. No, today. they're a republic. Yeah, the you know the what is it sixth French Republic fifth now I forget. Yeah, it's, they've, they've they had get a new one all the time. It's yeah. you know we're kind of embarrassed of our old crummy republic is still <laughs> two hundred and fifty years old or whatever it is at this point. Yeah, <laughs> so, the, whereas the we, current we want French... a shiny new one, right? Since so people are trying to do that, they're trying to call an Article Five convention. I actually had a call today from somebody who was interested in getting our, our really? legal work on a possibly illegal organization that's trying to have an Article <laughs> 5 convention because people really don't like how old our constitution is. But Wow, interesting. Yeah, know? but <laughs> I, I think that the, the current French system is basically dated to like the 60s, more or less. So, you know, after World War II, you have what they called the, you know, the de Gaulle years when Charles de Gaulle was effectively sort of running the show. And then when he was off the scene, they were like, oh, well, we need to figure something else out. So, yeah, so no monarchy. It was restored for a little while after the French Revolution, but yeah. then they got rid of it again. Uh, Several times. Back and forth quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, back and forth quite a bit. They had an emperor for a little while. You might have heard him. His name was couple Napoleon times. Bonaparte. Yeah. But we're, yeah, a couple times, actually. Yeah. Uh, we're going back before that, way yeah. back, all the way to 1789. So what's the world like in 1789? Well, obviously, the United States has just had its War of Independence. We concluded that, that, Independence 
occurred in 1776, yeah. July 4th, 1776, a date that you may have heard of. <laughs> and we end up getting rid of our Articles of Confederation, drafting a new constitution at the Constitutional Convention the summer of 1787, ratifying that in 1789. So right when we're getting our constitution, the world is being thrown into upheaval in France. Yeah. And, and the world will never look the same afterward. I mean, Edmund Burke famously declared that the age of chivalry is gone, that of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. So we're going to look at the documents that accomplished that glorious task today. Yeah. And so one of the things to, to bear in mind here is that this is a declaration of rights that is adopted by a body that calls itself the National Assembly. Now, where did these people come from and, you know, who gave them the authority? Those are sort of messy questions, even to them. You yeah, know, well, those questions are very simple in the United States. Exactly where our delegates to the, to the um, I'm sorry, to the Continental Congress got their authority. Exactly where the delegates to the Constitutional Convention got their authority. Very simple questions to answer. So already we're seeing differences. Yeah. So in France, basically leading up to this is in massive debt from mostly from a bunch of wars that they're trying to run, but also from the king maintaining an absurdly lavish court and nobody really being especially productive economically in France at the time for various reasons. Th those Ortolans will cost you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so you know, everyone is basically saying we need to get something figured out to do this. The king is not in a very strong position, so he agrees to call what they called the Estates General. That was sort of this thing that people have heard about in France, but it hasn't been called for like hundreds of years at this point. They're not entirely sure how it's supposed to work. But the basic idea is that representatives of the French people are supposed to gather together and they're divided into three orders, the nobility, the clergy, and the people, basically. So those three groups are- And those are the estates. You probably learned yeah. about that in history class in high school. There's three estates. Yeah. And first so, estate, second estate, third estate. Right. And so those people all gather together and they're going to, you know, try to figure out what to do about all the problems that France is facing. And they show up and basically the representatives of the people, the third estate, the commons, as it were, they say, basically, everyone needs to join us. In fact, none of the rest of this has any legitimacy. It's only the third estate that matters. And with a lot of pressure, including a lot of mobs in Paris, working to make that happen and some other stuff behind the scenes. It does, basically. And they declare themselves the National Assembly. Now everyone has been lumped together into the National Assembly, kind of by force. But one of the first things, I'm reading a book right now on the French Revolution and the history of, of the French Revolution, and I found this fascinating. One of the first things the National Assembly did is vote to free itself from any binding mandates that had been imposed upon the representatives when they were elected. So, you know, people Oof. being chosen to Oof. go, people being chosen <laughs> to go to, the, to this thing and work everything out, they, you know, their electorates sent them with lists of things that they were supposed to do and like, you know, authorizing them to vote on these issues, but not only these issues, basically. They show up and their first vote is more or less, none of that matters, we're just gonna do whatever we want to now. That's so horrible. We're starting My off great already. It, 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 there's not a, it's hard to come up with a better example of something that exceeds prerogative or, or is illegal yeah. than altering your mandate yeah. as soon as you arrive at a convention. And it, so I got to get this out of the way because there are people who claim that our framers did that at the Constitutional Convention. You know, yeah. people say they were sent to revise the Articles of Confederation and instead they voted to throw the whole thing out. That is not true. They were sent to come up with suggestions for fixing 
the Articles of Confederation, suggestions. They were supposed to come back with something to suggest to the states. Yeah. And they didn't have to alter their prerogative at all. They came back with suggestions, and their suggestion was we ought to replace the existing articles with this constitution. Then states called basically a plebiscite, and they, they appointed ratifying conventions in those states. Those ratifying conventions then were what looked over that constitution and decided whether or not it was going to become law. Yeah. Constitutional convention had nothing to do with that. They didn't exceed their prerogative in the slightest. Yeah. Very much not the case with the French National Assembly. So, yeah, pretty um, opposite. Yeah. And it, it's, but yeah, you're seeing already, it's people, the, what in fact happened in France gets retroactively read into what happened in the United States. Right. Such that people start to see commonalities and parallels between the two where they really are totally different. Yeah. And anyway, to that end, we should probably read now the, the text of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And can you do a pretty good fake French accent, David? I'm not going to. Whether I can or can't, I'm not oh, going to. Oh, mine's no good, but I would do it if I, <laughs> if I could do it. You, sh you shouldn't. Because this is actually, you know, it's not a super long document, but it is kind of a long document. And I don't think anyone really wants to hear that for that long. Anyway, <laughs> I, I want to point out. by the National Assembly of France. Oh, please I'll don't. Get... Please don't. I just, before we actually get into it. <laughs> I told you it wasn't good, David. That's what you're asking me to do by not doing it yourself. No, I explicitly asked you not to do that. But before we get into the actual <laughs> document, I want to remind people that very often this is treated as a parallel to the Declaration of Independence. I think mostly because they both have the word declaration in the name. But you'll see if you listen to our <laughs> previous episode. Right. If you listen to our episode on the Declaration of Independence, I think it should become obvious very quickly that these are hugely different documents. There's a bit in the very beginning of the Declaration of Independence that sort of sounds like some of this. But after you get past like the first paragraph, there's basically nothing in common at all. And with that in mind... Yeah. And it's uh, Governor Morris, actually, the ambassador of America, would, would talk a lot about how people were really enthusiastic about the fact that he was involved in American independence, but nobody listened to his advice at all. Yeah. So <laughs> people that were drafting these documents were not consulting with the people who had written them in the United States. So yeah, anyway, yeah. not consulting with people that wrote them, not really influenced by, except for to the extent of, hey, the Americans were able to shed themselves of their overlords, maybe we could do it too. Certainly they were influenced in that way. But the thought, not as much. So anyway, let's let's jump into it. Yeah. So it says, the representatives of the French people organized as a national assembly, believing that the ignorance, neglect, or contempt of the rights of man are the sole cause of public calamities and of the corruption of governments, have determined to set forth in a solemn declaration the natural, unalienable, and sacred rights of man. In order well, to use the word unalienable. Yeah. <laughs> That's similar. And it says something I see about, one similarity so far. Yeah, it says something about rights. Actually, you know, since we're paused, thank you for the interruption. Yeah. I do want to point out already you should be able to see one major difference here, which is that whereas the Declaration of Independence said we have a specific situation where our rights have been uh -huh. infringed, we uh -huh. have a specific sort of reason to be seeking a change. This is just already saying things that are true in general or supposed to be true in general. Yeah. And that'll that'll be a theme throughout. And, you know, we'll we'll get more into that later. But this for a document that was supposed to sort of kickstart a new form of government, there's remarkably little that is sort of legally applicable or of any practical import here. But we'll get into that more later. 
So, <clears throat> well, that's because the French are not nearly as uptight as you know, descendants <laughs> of Englishmen. It's, oh, you know, it's whatever, whatever, whatever goes. It's, well, it's fine. It'll work. Where we're like, no, we want to spell it out. We want to point by point. Interesting to, to say that they're less uptight when shortly after this, they're going to be uh, chopping people's heads off by the dozens, if not hundreds. But, you know. Oh, yes, but casually. Very, very. Um... <laughs> very sort of blase about it. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal or anything. It's you just can picture... that we inspect everybody going over our borders and make them present papers and yeah, you, you cut can... their heads off to the cries of the rabble when they're yeah. people we don't like. Yeah, you can picture the executioner leaning against the guillotine and smoking a cigarette while he does it. But. That's exactly what I was picturing. <laughs> That's just the way that Thomas Carlyle described it. Anyway, so in order that this declaration being constantly before all members of the social body shall remind them continually of their rights and duties in order that the acts of the legislative power as well as those of the executive power may be compared at any moment with the objects and purposes of all political institutions and may thus be more respected. And lastly, in order that the grievances of the citizens based here on, or excuse me, hereafter upon simple and incontestable principles shall tend to the maintenance of the Constitution redound to the happiness of all. Therefore, the National Assembly recognizes and proclaims in the presence and under the auspices of the supreme being the following rights of man and the citizen. So that's the yeah, so, so they're saying explicitly, this is not law. This is just so that the citizen can look at this and then compare it against what the government's doing as sort of a, you know, like those paint palettes that <laughs> Pantone makes where you open yeah. up your wall. It's like, well, how much has the wall faded? Yeah. You're supposed to hold this up to your government and see how much has it faded from its purpose. And if it's faded more than you would like, get the axes ready for some chopping. Yeah. Anyway. You're going to need a paint mixer. And by paint mixer, I mean guillotine. Yeah. So these are the, the rights that they declare. Number one, men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions may be founded only upon the general good. Gosh, that's see, that language is similar to the Declaration of Independence, but there's zero implication in the Declaration of Independence has anything to do with social condition. Right. There is not zero reason why people try to compare aspects of the French Revolution to, to what happened in America. There's not no reason, you know, men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Yeah, that sounds good. But there's well, what, a twist. I, I think that, there's know, always you, a twist to it. Well, you've got to understand about this time period, really about any time period. And I'm sure you can think of examples today. I, I'm don't, not jumping in mind for me, but in different times, people tend to use certain buzzwords, slogans, yeah. certain language tends to become very popular, enters very widespread use, regardless of where you fall on any kind of political, philosophical, religious, legal spectrum. You're going to express a lot of things using the same words, and you're going to mean different stuff by those words. I was just on a podcast earlier today where they were talking about sort of this concept. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, just me saying those words, I think you already understand the concept that I'm talking about. Those words mean very different things depending whose mouth they're coming out of. So that that's, I think, part of the confusion is that they were using late 18th century language, both of them, sort of enlightenment language, yeah, but expressing very different ideas with them. Social distinctions may be founded only upon the general good. That's polar opposite of the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence says that rights are derived from the consent of the governed, irrespective of the general good. Yeah. Rights come first. You organize your government such that it defends those rights. And then after that, you do it in the way that they think will be most conducive to their future safety and happiness. Yeah, and that'll be a social distinction. Pattern. Social distinctions come way before that. That's a way lower order consideration. Yeah, 
and that'll be a general pattern that I, I think you know people will be able to see is that the philosophical definitely takes precedence over the sort of question of legal rights throughout the French Revolution. But not big fans of law. In fact, <laughs> no. it's you know th their courts are. French Revolutionary. If you've ever read Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities and seen the courts in that, mm -hmm. it's it's almost a, it's a parody of how lack of procedure, yeah, particularly lack of rules of evidence, how the French rule of guilty until proven innocent, how this just makes a mockery of justice. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll have more opportunity to talk about that, but we probably do need to keep it moving. So I'm going to go on to number two, which says the aim of all political association is the preservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression. All right. Again, you can see a little bit of a parallel here. Yeah. But aim of all political association is the preservation of these unalienable rights. What did the Declaration of Independence say? Government. Governments yeah. are instituted among men to preserve these rights. Yeah. Not all political association. Because there's a lot of political activity that has nothing to do with state power and state coercion. You know, yep. we have rotary clubs. We have, we have all well, kinds of stuff. Clubs, for those of you who remember your, your history here, clubs, actual literal clubs for people to come and talk politics and debate philosophy and stuff are a huge factor in the French Revolution. So Yeah, you know. particularly the Jacobin Club. Yeah, yeah, them especially, but there were others as well, less successful than the, than the Jacobins. But all right, yeah. anyway, number three. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, the fact that a club ends up holding political power. Yeah, you chose the clubs were pretty, kind of a yeah. big deal. <laughs> yeah. Even a bigger deal than they are in sort of the EDM scene. <laughs> Good one. I'm sure you've been to plenty of raves and know all about that world. Not, not once, actually. <laughs> oh, you're shocking. Believe it or not. Uh, I can't believe it. All right. <laughs> I know, right? You would never guess. <laughs> Number three, the principle of all sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. No body nor individual may exercise any authority which does not proceed directly from the nation. The nation. Okay, so maybe they did read the Declaration of Independence because they're going through sort of the points in order and showing how strongly they disagree with them uh, because this, <laughs> the principle of all sovereignty resides in the nation. Well, what does the Declaration say about that? Declaration of Independence. The people. Yeah. Governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed. Individual people. This right. has exactly the opposite, that it does not derive from individuals, derives from the nation collectively. That pairs very neatly with the uh, from the first article about the distinctions being founded upon the general, general good. good. Yeah. And Whenever you talk about things in a general sense, talk about the nation as a whole, talk about the general good, as opposed to the good of the individuals that actually comprise that thing, that is licensed to do whatever the heck you want, whether or not people like it. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk more about that in a minute. So I'm going to hustle a little bit here. Number four, liberty consists in the freedom to do everything which injures no one else. Hence the exercise of the natural rights of Gosh, each man. Gosh, the libertarian axiom right there. Yep. Hence the exercise of the natural rights of each man has no limits except those which assure to the other members of society the enjoyment of the same rights. These limits can only be determined by law. Actually, even right here, you see the use of natural law is completely different from under a, a Scottish Enlightenment, English Enlightenment view. Yeah. By the way, we sell, we sell a copy of John Locke's Two Treatises on Government, if you want to understand his concept of natural law. Yeah. But this concept is very clearly different because they're treating natural law as essentially synonymous with civil law. Yeah. Saying yeah. that, yeah, you, that, that's what political rights consist of, where for John Locke, for under the English, Scottish American view of 
natural law. Natural law are those principles which pertain to rights prior to the organization of any society. Yeah. Logically prior, not necessarily chronologically prior. Right. These limits can only be determined by law, it says. Yeah. yeah. That is, so th they call it natural law. They, they, so when you use that term, generally people would think that those rights exist in nature, some way that's generally accessible to all people, that people can understand and apprehend that via their reason, right? That's not what they say here. These limits can only be determined by positive civil legislation. Right. Because again, what what really counts here is what the nation wants and you know how you define the nation is obviously a, yeah. a, a problem. We here. pick what constitutes harm to yeah. somebody else. And, and, already, and we think that being Yeah, they've already declared themselves the representatives of the of the nation. Remember, they changed the name from being the third estate to being the National Assembly, and then they promptly voted right. to free themselves from any mandates that bound them to the things the people who elected them actually wanted them to do. Natural uh, law now, because the <laughs> limits of rights are determined by law. Yeah. So the next one, basically, you know, a flip side of that one says law can only prohibit such actions as are hurtful to society. Nothing may be hurtful to society. Nothing may be prevented, which is not forbidden by law. And no one may be forced to do anything not provided for by law. So, yeah, the key thing to note there is that law isn't law could be anything under this model. Law can be whatever the National Assembly determines it to be. There aren't any you know, fundamental limits in what they've said philosophically. No, it's got, it's got to be it's got to be only something that prohibits things that are hurtful to society, David. That's a limit. <laughs> right. But in whose eyes? Anyway. The uh, eyes of the nation. It said that earlier. And the nation is us. All right. Moving on to... Well, they, well, they represent the nation. They've yeah. appointed themselves to do that. Yeah. Anyway, we got it. We got to keep it moving quick. So I'm going to try to okay. blast through some of this. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. Right. How many are there? Oh, goodness. There's yeah, 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So number six. Law is the expression of the general will. This is where we're really okay. Into the meat it, of it. There we go. They were answering David's objection. Yeah. See, they're on to you, David. They know yeah. what you were going to say, and they've got an answer for it. Law is the expression of the general will. Every citizen has a right to participate personally or through his representative in its foundation. It must be the same for all, whether it protects or punishes. All citizens, being equal in the eyes of the law, are equally eligible to all dignities and to all public positions and occupations according to their abilities and without distinction except that of their virtues and talents. Gee, now, how it. That, that reminds me, you know the step three profit scheme? Yeah. Yep. Ste step one, I, I forget what step one is. Collect underpants uh, in the original. Yeah, collect underpants. <laughs> step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step, step three, three profit. profit. Yep. Yeah. It is, okay, I, I get it. Yeah, so all laws are the expression of the general will. Yeah, every citizen has a right to participate. Yeah, sure, sure, that makes sense. So because of that, we're going to make sure that all dignities and public positions and occupations are available according to ability. Yeah. What's and, step two? Well, How do you get to that? You know, I think, you know, the background here is the fact that prior to the French Revolution, there were certain official positions that were open only to the nobility or only to clergy. And basically, you know, one of the, the major grievances that people had going into the, the National Assembly was that they were barred from certain positions. And, you know, understandably so. So. Napoleon was just the most capable Frenchman? <laughs> well, he's not on the scene yet, you're anticipating. Or Corsican, rather, because he's not even French. <laughs> yeah, but we'll get to that later. But I think that for now... So Robespierre is the most capable Frenchman. We'll get to him sooner than Napoleon. But <laughs> to, I think the key part of this one for us I, I, is I, that... You know, I like living in a country where I don't have to think of my president as the most capable American. Yeah. But thus far, you know, the, the key element in this... 
as far as everything else goes, is that expression law is, is that phrase rather law is the expression of the general will. Because I think there's basically two accents you could give that. And on the one hand, you could read it as saying the general will should decide the law and the law will be what the general will decides. Or the other way you could read it, and I think this is the way that ultimately wins, is what the law is, is the will of the people by nature, by definition. And therefore, anyone opposed to a law is opposed to the people. And that will have some I, I think promise. That's, in, I think in, that's in slightly unfair because I, would th I think they would only say that's true of a democratic government. Yeah, no, no, no. well, yes, law is the, as they're deciding it. But things will sort of quickly slip from the grasp of the ordinary electorate of France, let's say. Yeah, turns out the center does not hold. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, number seven. No person shall be accused, arrested, or imprisoned except in the cases and according to the forms prescribed by law. Anyone soliciting transmission. That sounds like, you know, no prosecution without due process of the law. That yeah. sounds okay. Yeah. Anyone soliciting, transmitting, executing, or causing to be executed any arbitrary order shall be punished. Now, this is where we get a little more questionable. Oh. Punished by whom and according to what system? But any citizen, any arbitrary order, it goes on. But any citizen summoned or arrested in virtue of the law shall submit without delay, as resistance constitutes an offense. <laughs> we have that one now. We got that. We copied that one. Resisting sort of. arrest, sort of. Yeah, we um, have that one now. We used to not yeah. have that one. That's yeah. that's because of this. So anyway, that's we'll, great. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Number eight. The law shall provide for such punishments only as are strictly and obviously necessary, and no one shall suffer punishment uh -huh. except it be legally inflicted in virtue of a law passed and promulgated before the commission of the offense. Well, you got no ex post facto law there. The yeah. second part, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, first part, I guess, is maybe designed to parallel excessive bails or cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's basically... I don't know how you define a stri strictly necessary to what end? Right. Punishment. That, that's again that's, strictly necessary to satiate the uh, insatiable appetite for blood of your leaders, because that's what that's happens, a pretty basically. high bar. <laughs> yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah, I would say that's a that's a bar that they can probably meet most of the time. Yeah, you see what they're what you know on the one hand what the idea is. They're mad about sort of politically motivated punishments, which tend to go with arbitrary monarchies sometimes. Obviously, the English this is meaningless though. That. But yeah. Who's going to decide what's strictly and obviously necessary? No, they're asking, don't be arbitrary, but they aren't providing an alternate standard against which you can measure it. Right. You could say it's stri strictly necessary to prevent the specific criminal from recidivism. Yeah. That's going to be hard to determine. That's going to require a lot of judicial discretion. That's going to end up being very arbitrary. Yeah. Anyway, got to keep it moving. So number nine. As all persons are held innocent until they shall have been declared guilty, if arrest shall be deemed indispensable, all harshness not essential to the securing of the prisoner's person shall be severely repressed by law. You know, again, in principle, that sounds pretty good. You know, you want to... So when, when did they get rid of the innocent until proven guilty? Well, we'll talk about that very specifically in just a bit. So bear with okay. me. Okay. This timeline so much changed so quickly. I have trouble keeping track of when things changed. Yeah. Ten. No one shall be disquieted on account of his opinions, including his religious views. Sounds good so far, right? Oh, that's pretty good. But they don't do that anymore. Provided their manifestation does not disturb the public oh, order goodness. established by law. So okay. No. So then that so when that Muslim lady wore her burqa to the opera, like mm -hmm. happened a couple of years ago, and then all of the audience and I think the the singers even and orchestra all shouted at her relentlessly until she left. <laughs> you would say that she was actually in the wrong there because. The fact that they were very angry about her religious expression 
meant that she was disturbing public peace. Probably, you know, there probably wasn't a specific law against doing what she did, so maybe not. But if we bear in mind that the law is just the general will, seems like the general will was against her there. So yeah, it probably. seemed they generally willed that. <laughs> yeah, you know, generally willed for her to leave. Yeah. All right. Anyway, number eleven, the free communications of ideas and opinions is one of the most precious of the rights of man. Yeah, that sounds good. Every citizen yeah, may accordingly speak, write, and print with freedom. Sounds good. But shall be responsible for such abuses of this freedom Ooh. as shall be defined by law. Ooh, you dropped the ball there. Yeah. That now, was, boy, know. big swing and a miss on that one. <laughs> that was, you could have just put a period after and print with freedom. Yep. You didn't need to and shall be responsible for such abuses of this freedom as shall be defined by law. How can you abuse a freedom? Yeah. If, if you're you know, free to do something, by definition, you can't abuse it. Unless the general will goes against you. And by general will, we mostly mean the Jacobin Club. But, you know, we'll get to that. <laughs> All that's right. good. That boy, big swing and a miss there. That's a... Yeah, that's a bad one. Number 12. The security of the rights of man and the citizen requires public military forces. These forces are therefore established for the good of all and not for the personal advantage of those to whom they shall be entrusted. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Good to know. And, you know, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, you know, you have a long tradition of only aristocrats leading armies. Aristocrats often have their own agendas. You get what they're aiming at here. Does this need to be a fundamental political principle? I don't know. I, I don't know about that. Well, it's also, you know, you can say this. Right. But then when people do establish militaries. Yeah. Who's going to stop them? It's, it's any man's guess whether yeah, or not they're going to be established for the good of all and not for personal advantage. My bet is they're probably going to be established for the advantage of whoever is paying them. Yeah. And speaking of Napoleon, which we will probably be doing at length a couple episodes from now. Um, yeah, th they really failed to keep this one going. <laughs> uh, we, we can say that at the least. Okay. So... Moving on, number 13, a common contribution is essential for the maintenance of the public forces and for the cost of administration. This oh, I should, don't like that one at all. This should be equally distributed, um, or excuse me, equitably distributed among all the citizens in proportion to their means. So they have as one Again, of their- very different. Yeah, one of their fundamental political principles is an income tax. That's not, graduate, graduated income tax. Yeah, not something that they, you know, came up with later, which is what happened in America, but this is enshrined from the very beginning as one of the, not just a thing that's good and we should do, yeah. but as a right of man is yeah, to be Yeah, a right taxed. of man is a graduated <laughs> income tax. Yeah. <laughs> not even that you'll be taxed, but specifically a tax on income and a yeah. graduated tax on income. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I'm not a big fan of that one at all, to be honest with you. Again, remember, we mentioned this when we were talking about Sibelius. That's the Obamacare, or as I like to call it, Robert's Care decision. Yeah. We mentioned that in the United States, prior to the 16th Amendment, any tax had to be imposed in proportion to the enumeration of the census of each state. In other words, everybody had to pay the same amount. Yeah. Anyway, Very different. So, yeah, quite different. Anyway, number 14. All the citizens have a right to decide, either personally or by their representatives, as to the necessity of the public contribution to grant this freely, to know what uses it is put to, and to fix the proportion, the mode of assessment, and of collection, and the duration of the taxes. So, you know, I guess if you're going to be taxed, you, you should have a say in it. That's true, I guess. But, you know, yeah. we didn't need to This, this reminds me of, I, I think I sent this tax. to you, David. Mm -hmm. There's a Noam Chomsky video that is... Probably oh. one of the dumbest things I've ever <laughs> I, heard. I know which one you're talking about, yeah. Where where he says that if we lived in a truly democratic... So, you know, everybody hates April 15th, obviously, because you pay your taxes. And Noam Chomsky says if we lived in a truly democratic society, people would love 
April 15th, because that would be the day when we get to fund all the things that we decided and that we picked. Yeah. Yeah. So happy to pay the taxes that. But apparently if you're French, that's true or, you know, should be true. According yeah. to anyway. that, that's just the most out of t only somebody who's been an academic for 60 <laughs> plus years could yeah. think that people are. Yeah. I mean, e even if it's majority rule on everything, presumably sometimes people are going to vote for things that you personally didn't like, right? Yeah. You're not just going to say, well, that's the will of the majority, so I love funding it now. Yeah, but there's, you should though, because otherwise you don't like democracy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, they truly, even if they don't think they love it, they, they're in their true heart of hearts, they actually love it. Yeah. Number 15, society has the right to require of every public agent an account of his administration. Yeah, I mean... That one's good. Sure. Yeah. It's like a public records yeah. section. Yeah, that one's good. That one's I don't fine. have any qualms with that one. Yep. Number 16. A I guess it doesn't specify a method, but none of these are right. very specific. So Right. And that's, well, well, yeah, that'll be one of the touchstones of our discussions of the French Revolution. Number 16. A society in which the observance of the law is not assured, nor the separation of powers defined, has no constitution at all. They never had separation of powers. Right. And they, they talk about separation of powers, but then their actions speak much louder than their words, as we will talk about at What's, least in future episodes, if not today. You know what's amusing to me? Mm -hmm. There was nothing in any of these articles saying that a, a society must have a constitution or even that a constitution was good. So <laughs> That's true. all this article is saying is that well, if we don't do these things, then we don't have a constitution. Uh, yeah. And that, that might that's, be fine for all that, we yeah, know. That could be good or bad. Who knows? <laughs> anyway. All right. And finally, number 17, since property is an inviolable and sacred right, no one shall be deprived thereof except where public necessity legally de uh, determined shall clearly demand it. And then only on condition that the owner shall have been previously and equitably Wow. This is another one where you can see the way that this absolutely colors the way that people interpret sections of our constitution. Yeah. You know, we have no property shall be taken except for public use. Yeah. But if you look at the Supreme Court precedent on that over the past 200 years or so, it's not public use at all. I mean, they'll very regularly take private property. Well, for instance, I live in Los Angeles. They took private property to build Dodger Stadium. Yep. Dodger Stadium is not public use. That's used by the Dodgers. Right. That's... But it's, you, you can see where this language of public necessity has colored the interpretation of what our documents say, which is something very different. Yeah. Well, and I, again, like I said, I've been reading a, a book on the history of the French Revolution lately and has made me remember an instance that they talked about where, you know, very shortly after the National Assembly gets going, there's a huge grain shortage in France. They're having, you know, they, they're, they're on the back of several bad harvests in a row. And, you know, traditionally in France, as was the case in many other countries around the world at the time, when food is scarce, the government starts imposing uh, price fixing on bread. And interestingly, a lot of the members of the National Assembly were up to this point opposed philosophically and, and politically to price fixing. But they're suddenly in Paris where there's mobs of very hungry people, very mad at them and wanting cheap bread. And so they basically sanctioned people going into bakeries and grocery stores, grabbing all the merchandise, selling it to the crowd outside at what they have just determined to be a fair price, and then handing the money afterward to the owner. And 
that flies very much in the in the face of this last part. Where public says, necessity. Well, yeah, public yeah, previously necessity. Inequitably claim, indemnified, not pre- subsequently. Yeah. Previously <laughs> indemnified, not. not well, so indemnification just means that you promise to cover their liability, not that you actually. Well, cover. yeah, but I, I don't know that there is much. So of a maybe, time they, maybe they to... told them when they took it. We'll we'll pay, we'll pay you back later. <laughs> yeah, that would be an indemnification. Previously, in the, by the span of like you know five seconds, but anyway, so yeah, that's previously. This this was the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Now we've gone through. I can't say that I like it. No, we've gone through and we've we've highlighted some of the the specific differences between the American system and what's contained here. But I want to return to this idea that we really emphasize when we're talking about the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is basically a legal complaint. So it cites specifics. It says these things happened. These rights were violated in this specific way, and therefore we. These are our rights. Here is how our rights have been violated. Here is the consequence for the violation of our rights. Right. Whereas here, you get nothing but broad and sweeping statements on the one hand, and then on the other, reading between the lines, pretty specific, like ultra specific things that actually don't apply to most circumstances in general, mainly to do with people being mad at the nobility. So I think it's an interesting contrast on that level. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's remarkable how well the, the grievances in the Declaration of Independence have aged, yeah. actually, because you know, their specific grievances are very much tied to that historical period. But because many of our founding fathers were so well-versed in political theory and philosophy, you know, they, studying back all, all the way to Cicero, Aristotle, the, the sorts of patterns they were looking for were ones that are repeated in governments. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, we're mad at the particular administration right now even though it is the grievances they've committed, it's the sorts of things governments tend to do as well. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's the text of the 1789 Declaration of Rights of Man and the Citizen. Less well-known is an edition that was voted on four years later. It was approved. It was meant to be part of the project of establishing a new constitution for the French Republic. Yeah. But This is the one that I believe Governor Morris was commenting on, mm-hmm. this constitution. Yeah, but it never actually ends up getting used because shortly after the new constitution is approved, it is suspended by a declaration of emergency and emergency powers are given to what was called the Committee of Public Safety. And they're well, the that ones- Well, that sounds good. They keep who, you safe. They're the ones who are going to be guillotining people and eventually will be guillotined themselves because David, revolutions those, eat their own. But, those who have nothing to hide have nothing to fear. Yeah. It only exists to keep us safe. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you care about safety? No, not at all. Um, That's actually the, you know, Benjamin Franklin's famous quotation that yeah. those who would sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither and will lose both Yeah, is a direct reference to that. Yes. And we're not going to read all of that 1793 version. For one thing, it's substantially longer. For another, it has a lot of the same things, but it does have a lot that's quite different. And, but I do want to just sort of highlight a few specifics. So talking about the the same sort of concept that we saw in the original version about basically protections against arbitrary arrest, they say, no one ought to be accused, arrested, or detained except in the cases determined by law and according to the forms that it has prescribed. Any citizen summoned or seized by the authority of the law ought to obey immediately. He makes himself guilty by resistance. So we're getting a little more explicit about- Wait, the, guilty of the crime that he's accused of, not just guilty of resisting arrest? It, just guilty in general. And you know, as you can probably oh. guess, being found guilty by the revolution at this point tends to be very bad for you. Oh, let me, let me get a guillotine sound effect. 
I I don't have time. Go yeah, ahead. It's fine. So there's that. You know, we're we're. So I, we should have that for the rest of this series, though. We fair should, enough. You know, just punct punctuate transitions with the guillotine sound effect. Fair enough. Another key difference here is that whereas in the original version, it said that men are free and equal in their rights. The 1793 version adds that they are equal not only before the law, but by nature. And reading between the lines, this is where we're starting to get to the point where basically the Paris mobs are really calling the shots behind the behind the scenes. And if you're equal by nature, not just by law, then any differences that you can sort of notice are suspect, right? Because if everyone's equal, not only in their rights, but also by nature... Why is anything different for anybody? So suddenly- well, Aren't we, our, our Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Yeah, created created equal, but equal in what capacity is the question here. Equal in their rights. I right. mean, that's the next clause of the sentence. Yep. And so suddenly, you know, you're a rich man. Why are you rich when other people are poor? And you can they, see- They don't specify what sort of equality they're talking about. Yeah, but you It's can not just equality before the law, it's equality- as a general proposition. Right. And that's from Rousseau. That's directly from Rousseau. You know, ev everywhere, you, man is born free and yet everywhere he is in chains. That That's very much Rousseau's state of nature. Uh, you know, he, he's yeah. sort of where we get the idea of the, the society is, is what creates these distinctions among men. Yeah. Here's another one. I think this one you'll see immediately where the problem is. You, Alex, specifically, hopefully the listener as well, but... They added There's a, hot take. a new clause. Because I've not read this one before. No, 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 no. They add a new clause. Well, it could be it could be a hot take of sorts, but they add a clause that says, a people has always the right to review, reform, and to alter its constitution, which, you know, thus far, okay. But yeah. one generation cannot subject to its law the future generations. Oh my gosh. So basically- You hear people saying that all the time nowadays. Yeah, and this is where that- idea probably came from that's the worst that's yeah. one of the dumbest things i've ever heard yeah now one generation necessarily subjects the next generation to things i mean the mere fact that you were born to certain parents subjects you to things yeah and while it sounds there's a certain kind of anti-authoritarian pro freedom and pro don't trust anyone over 30 yeah well there's a certain <laughs> angle where you're like yeah that makes sense you know I, why do i have to listen to what you told me to do just because you told me to do it but the problem is a society's laws are transpersonal and transgenerational. They are they, there they, to- Because there are legal relationships that are created by the law. And, yeah. and those ex exist over spans of time. And the, the yeah, and the, the point of it is to ensure that there is a stable and predictable environment for you to go about your life. And here's a great example. Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, there are two different basically legal regimes that apply depending which state you live in when it comes to marital property. And that applies at divorce, that applies uh, at, at uh, death and, and inheritance a lot of times, but those are the common law rules of marital property and what's called community property rules of marital property. Why do we have that? Well, it's because some of our states began as English colonies and some of our states began as Spanish colonies. And if people are married under Spanish law, which treats their property a certain way, very differently from how English law treats it, those marriages aren't going to go away yeah. once those states are incorporated into the union. Those marriages are going to continue to be in effect. You can't throw all those people who are already married into upheaval as a result of, of this new legal regime that's come into effect. Yeah. So because of that, 
To this day, we still have essentially Spanish rules for marriage in many states. California is one of them. Mm -hmm. And you can't ever get rid of that because there's always any date, you know, pick 20 years from now, we're going to get rid of it. Well, there's going to be people married at that point that may spend a great deal more of their life married afterward. There's never going to be a point at which you can have complete separation between the old regime and the new one. Right. Because there's never going to be a point where nobody's married and then all of them are getting married again afterward. Yep. Now, some countries don't care about that. Like like France. <laughs> yeah, they're fine just throwing people's pre-existing and legally defined relationships into upheaval. We don't do that here. We right. like contracts to be upheld. We want people to have expectations of the way the future is going to work. We don't want to change things on people. Yeah. Like, I mean, the reliance interest, we talked about this in, in the Dobbs discussion. That's the case that overturned Roe v. Wade. And we said that the, probably the strongest thing against overturning Roe v. Wade was what's called reliance interests. Yep. People had to plan their lives around a right to abortion. And while I don't think that was strong enough to go against overturning Roe v. Wade, reliance interests are a very strong consideration in many, many cases. Yep. It's a significant thing. And yep. I think France just apparently doesn't put much value on that at all. No. <laughs> and anyway, there's, there's more to this one that we could talk about, but for the interest of time, I just want to bring up one more. And for this one, we need to, again, return to a little bit of historical context. In January of 1793, a very particular person goes to the guillotine, Louis XVI. More particular than other people. <laughs> well, in a sense, in a sense. But Louis XVI, who at this point has been formally deposed, so they, they don't address him in, in court as Louis XVI. They call him Louis Capet, which is a very old family name for the French royal dynasty, but they put him on trial. They execute him in January. Six months later in July, they adopt this document. And one of the things it says, let any person who may usurp the sovereignty, and they've, you know, the previous clauses have been about how the sovereignty lies with the people, but let any person who may usurp the sovereignty be instantly put to death by free men. Instantly. Okay. Instantly. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not comfortable as, with that at all. As to your question about when do they get rid of innocent until proven guilty, pretty much here, because this is what- Well, it's, I'd say it's solidly gone by this well, point. Well, this is not the first step in getting rid of innocent no, until proven but, guilty. But let me, let me read you, and this is the leading voice of what has become the rising power of the French Revolution. This is Maximilien Robespierre, who would go on to lead the Jacobin Club, lead the Committee of Public Safety, until eventually people got tired of being tyrannized by this man, and they put him to death. So They call know. it the reign of terror. Yeah, but- this And it's is, called that for good reason. This is what he had to say about- the trial and execution of King Louis. Louis cannot be judged. He has already been judged. He has been condemned or else the Republic is not blameless. After all, if Louis can still be put on trial, Louis can be acquitted. He might be innocent. Or rather, That's he, is, the point. he yeah. is presumed to be until he is found guilty. But if Louis is acquitted, if Louis can be presumed innocent, what becomes of the revolution? Oh my gosh! Mm -hmm. I almost that, decided that, to that reminds me of that of that uh, governor. Was it the mayor of, of Chicago? I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I said I was about to say I almost put this one in the hot takes, and I was gonna ask you to to see if you could think of any parallels with this. Lori Lightfoot. She said that if someone has been arrested and held in a jail awaiting bail for a violent crime, 
that they shouldn't be bailed and released back into the community because the prosecutor must have enough evidence to actually convict yeah. them if they would have Yes, they're them. innocent until proven guilty. Yes, we accept, understand and accept all that, but, but if the prosecutor arrests them, they're guilty. But this you know, speech by Robespierre, obviously this isn't all of that, it. That is gut right. That, that is absolutely stomach turning. Yeah, that no, I, I think, you know, it literally caused chills. Like like I said, I've been reading this book and I, I got to this part of it and the hair on my arm stood up when I read this part. Yeah. Because you can see already what's happened, which is the revolution itself has become the source of all legal legitimacy. And who is part of the revolution? Basically, whoever is able to impose their vision of the revolution. But it's insane that he even recognizes that's what's going on. Yep. And he's open because he says it. he says the revolution has failed if we don't find Louis guilty. Yeah. And he so therefore, irrespective of whether he is guilty or isn't guilty and the, the charges against him. Were, the fact that the revolution took place. Yeah. Means that Louis is guilty. Yeah, because if and if we say that he might not be not even that he is innocent, but that he might be innocent then the revolution is over instantaneously. That is, I, I, I'm, I'm beyond words. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So we'll talk more in future episodes about the direction the revolution takes, but you can, I want to point out too, there were, as we talked about, there are plenty of reasons to be critical of the original statement, statements rather of the declarations of the rights of man that came in 1789. 1793 is that version of it is you can see where the tracks have been laid and where the train is heading. And yeah. it's pretty and that, that's where, upsetting. <laughs> that's where Edmund Burke made his, I think in, in 1793 is when Edmund Burke made his famous quotation. Yeah, I, I think that might be right. But Edmund Burke's a big hero of ours over at Lex Rex. So yeah, to quote at any rate, you know, we've, we see the degeneration, how quickly it comes. It starts as something that could have resulted in Reform is basically in the way that public officials were chosen and how people would have input into the laws of France. And yeah, very valid with, grievances. Yeah, and it ends with basically an explicitly, Un well, dictatorial system where the revolution itself, whatever the internal logic of the revolution is, doesn't matter who voted for it, who's in favor. If the revolution is going one way, that's what's right. A complete abandonment of the rule of law. Yeah. All right. Well, and, uh, I think I've commented on this before, but sometimes the transition from our final topic to hot takes is very jarring. This no, is it's a good one because that Robespierre thing would have been a great hot take. Yeah. Well, if I had, I, thought I, just, I want to just conclude this section. So we're not gonna. We're, we would. You know, we we would loathe to just sort of force feed you guys opinions, but we'll let you judge for yourselves whether or not the French Revolution is very similar to American independence. Yeah. Hot takes. Hot takes time. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. So this first one I picked because it has a lot to do or, you know, at least parallels with the case we talked about earlier, that uh, case in Maine. So without further ado, here we go. This is from Twitter again, David. You promised me they wouldn't be from Twitter today. No. Well, one, one won't be. Two will be. Two, one won't be. All right. Yeah. I'll take what I can get. Yeah. Okay. So this is, I guess, a facetious exchange between people. No, 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 no. Uh, this, this, is, this is just a list with like, you know, it's just this, this. Oh, just a list of, yeah. of people with things that are true. About. Okay. Yeah. So this is from Jeff Blackwell. He says, John Roberts, Catholic. Clarence Thomas, Catholic. Samuel Alito, Catholic. Brett Beerboy Kavanaugh, Catholic. <laughs> Neil Gorsuch, Catholic. Amy Barrett, Catholic. The U.S. is only two-ninths Catholic. 
This is what a religious test for office looks like, prohibited by <laughs> Article 6. Okay, well, first of all, Justice Gorsuch is not Roman Catholic. Yeah. Well, Justice Gorsuch, I, I believe, is Anglican. He, there's sort of a uh, an ambiguity about him because I believe he is was baptized Catholic and raised Catholic. He was raised but, Catholic. His mother was Roman Catholic. Yeah, and he he may not have ever. You have to actually go out of your way to you know remove yourself from the roles of of uh, of confirmed Catholics. So maybe he never did that. But as far as I know, he attends an Episcopalian I, I or guess Anglican. You're church. right. The Roman Catholic Church would still consider him Roman Catholic. Yeah. That just probably wouldn't be how he identifies himself. Okay, so that's fair. They can say that. Yeah. Uh, but that's not what he would consider himself. All right. So uh, leaving that factual <laughs> error aside, also I, the epithet of, of Kavanaugh's beer boy is, is not one that I've heard before. But uh, I think he made it up. I thought it was very clever and, and amusing because you remember oh, very Brett, clever. Brett Kavanaugh you know, talking sure about he beer. Got lots of shares on Twitter. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so a constitution does prohibit religious tests for office. That doesn't just mean that you aren't going to get a bunch of people of one religion in office. In fact, if you had a way of preventing the accumulation of people of particular religion in office, that would be, I hate to I hate to break this to you, that would be a religious test. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you would need a religious test to prevent, uh, at least, you know, to absolutely prevent a random agglomeration of people of a particular religion. <laughs> yeah. It's, in fact, the religious test clause, what that means is you can't have prescribed by law. So this is a separate point, but people make mistakes about it all the time. What it means is you can't have prescribed by law a requirement that somebody, you know, sign some kind of oath saying, I'm a Protestant, because yeah. they did have that yeah. in the United Kingdom. It's called it the Test Act. The president could, could say, I'm only going to appoint branch Dravidians to the Supreme Court. He could say that out loud, and he could appoint only branch Dravidians to the Supreme Court. That would in no way violate the Constitution. He's allowed to do that. He's allowed to have his own criteria for appointing people. As, you know, not about religion, but you will remember President Biden said that he was specifically going to nominate a black woman to the court. And right. uh, yeah, that wasn't unconstitutional for him to do that. Yeah. And that's, again, I, I think that the probably the Senate would probably not give their consent to a bunch yeah. of branch Dravidian nominees. <laughs> and, and I think if the president openly voiced, I'm appointing people of a particular religion, I think the Senate should view that with a great deal of suspicion, and they should probably not confirm those appointees because that's a bad reason yeah. to appoint someone to the court. I, I think that really kind of any filling a box for any kind of demographic category, I think, is a pretty bad reason to appoint someone to the Supreme Court. It could be a consideration, sure, but it shouldn't be your sole reason. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think Biden was foolish to say that. Uh, that's sort of my political opinion on that, I guess. But that says nothing of my opinion of Justice Jackson, by the way. It's, I, I think that she actually is qualified uh, in terms of her past experience. It's actually very similar to other people on the Supreme Court, Yeah, which is kind of funny because he was trying to get some diversity on the court, and I think he kind of really utterly failed there. But anyway, <laughs> I, I think that just talking about saying the reason that I'm picking somebody is because she's a black woman, I think that's not great. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So this next one, and you know, at your request, I went and I looked for a suitable part of a, a you know Hollywood production. So I was doing some searching on the internet and I came across a description of something that sounded so absurd that I had to go and verify it for myself. I don't watch this show, but this is apparently some kind of HBO drama called Big Little Lies. I think I've heard of that. As far as I've been able to determine, because like I said, I don't watch this show. This is a clip from a custody trial that involves a grandmother trying to get custody of her grandchildren. 
her son, their father, is dead, and she's accusing the mother of being an unfit parent. So as I believe that's the context here. Do her children become the property of Carl's Jr.? Um, is that from Idiocracy? I don't remember that. That is from Idiocracy. Okay, well, cool. Yes, you are uh, a mother. Your children are now the property of Carl's Jr. Okay. That would not be legal, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. Children are not property. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. All right. And they generally won't give corporations custody either. Did you ever strike your mother-in-law? I slapped her in the face. And, and push your husband down a flight of stairs. No. And how dare you? How dare you? I mean, it's sort of his job, but... This is a computer simulation of your husband's fatal fall. Objection. <laughs> Relevance. Oh, not to mention... Relevance? Relevance? We're not going to say that it's speculative or... <laughs> yeah, but hold on. Just... Okay, this is off the chart prejudicial. This how isn't a jury trial counsel. I'll give you time to impeach if you want. This is where your husband would have landed from a natural fall. Now, this is where he did land. Oh. <laughs> it's not even an expert witness to testify about this. It's just no. play. So the, you guys can't see it. They're playing a computer animation of a guy kind of tumbling down the stairs and saying that if he'd fallen naturally, he would have fallen differently than the way that he fell here. Yeah. Because the simulation says so. <laughs> the lawyer just shows this. No one's testifying about it. And he's like, witness. Yeah, no, look, we... What of this? We, we, you, know? <laughs> this it, 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 you know, it is not a very impressive looking, you know, because I think this show came out like a few years ago. It's very recent. This is not an imp a particularly impressive looking computer model even. It looks like... Well, some... And if you've, if you've ever been in trial, you know that any graphic that a lawyer presents is never going to be impressive looking. So that that's... But like, you know... It, that's typical. It has the appearance of something where it's like, you know, you were, you know, a high school student screwing around in a computer science class might have produced this animation. Like, we have no evidence that it's reflective of any actual, you know, physics model that might go into the, like, you know it's just an animation of a guy falling basically and then well but her lawyer he's on the ball he objects and says that it is irrelevant irrelevant yeah uh hold on i, I forget if there, <laughs> i forget if there's more to this let's just let's let it play for another few seconds and i'll cut okay. it if it's not play us out the physics say that for him to have landed there the physics say he must have been pushed yeah the physics say that so yeah, I that's just, you know, he doesn't say, like, you heard the expert witness testify earlier that the physics say so on and so forth. The lawyer is just introducing this on his own. Yeah. And opposing counsel just sits there twiddling his thumbs being like, I guess this is fine yeah, because I, the physics say so. I showed you an animation. Clearly, the physics are on my side. <laughs> yeah, Your Honor, request for judicial notice that this animation perfectly reflects <laughs> physical reality. Yeah. All right, I think it's probably not funny to anybody, but did it's you push funny him? to me. So no, I did not. How did he fall? He lost his balance and he slipped. He lost his balance immediately after you found out he'd been unfaithful with another woman who bore his child. Assumes facts not in evidence. Yeah, you can't just say that. Lawyer can't just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Assumes facts not in evidence. Yeah. Your Honor, this is not relevant. Not relevant. She might commit a homicide, uh, but hey. What? Objection. Yeah, right. the objection on relevance relevant. is sustained. I, she objected on... It's on very relevant. That's true. That's very relevant to yeah, you, whether or not she pushed her husband down the stairs. Yeah. And you'd think they objected to relevance on this whole situation, too. You'd think, you know, if you could actually prove it, 
in under legal standards that she yeah, had very murdered her husband. I feel like it probably makes sense for her to not have custody of her kids. Yeah, that's <laughs> extremely relevant to the custody question. It, relevance is not the issue. You could say maybe it's unduly prejudicial or that it assumes facts, not in evidence or that it lacks foundation. Lots of uh, not uh, this 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 diagram, not diagram, but this simulation is not authenticated. Yeah. Lots of other problems. Yeah. Um, I would, if, if I were the judge on that, I'd look at the lawyer and be like, really? That's what you want to object to? You want to try again? Yeah. I'll give you another try. Yeah. You know, keep keep going. You get three strikes. Yeah. You're, you're on the right track. I mean, ob objection was right. <laughs> yeah. You know, if someone used this as like a, a teaching tool in a, a law school class, not that I think they should. This That seems like a weird way to teach a class. But I feel like that's, you know, someone trying to coach you through. No, you're right to object here. <laughs> but, you know, what are you? I, I actually only... I only had one time in, in my law school experience where it, where I was taught using a video clip. Uh -huh. And you know what it was? You may have told me at some point, but I don't remember if so. It, it was John Eastman in my property law class, second semester of my 1L year, my first year. And we were learning about rights of succession. Mm -hmm. So he played a clip from the beginning of Henry V. Oh, yeah, which we talked about. Uh, we talked about Henry V last week, right? It's, it's, the, it's the famous one where they're, they're making the case for why Henry V has a valid claim to the, the French throne. Yeah. And it goes on and on and on about, you know, the, the Salic law. And and then he concludes, and I think it's supposed to be kind of, we talked about this last week, didn't we? Yeah. Anyway, we it concludes, tis clear as is the summer sun that you have a claim to the throne here. And Eastman pointed out to us, actually is clear as is the summer sun. But yeah. anyway, uh, more one more yeah. hot take. Yep. Last one for this time. And again, it is Twitter. So before you complain about it, acknowledging <laughs> it's Twitter, just get past it. All right. I won't even comment on it. Okay. So Robbie says, the constitution that over two plus million service members took an oath to support and defend protected the right to abortion. Now it doesn't. So now all current military contracts are null and void and all troops can leave their posts immediately with honorable discharges. Yeah, try that. Uh, see, see how that goes. <laughs> and I, I think even setting aside that, yeah, I don't think the military is going to is going to award you that honorable discharge you're looking for if you cite this as the reason. Um, turns out the court found that the Constitution doesn't actually protect yeah, that's, that. That's actually for our teaching purposes. That's the important point to make here is that when the when the Supreme Court overrules precedent, they are not changing what the Constitution says. Yeah. They are saying they got it wrong the previous time. Yeah. Because remember, judicial opinions are evidence of law. They're very good evidence of law. Right. The higher the court, the better the evidence of law they are. They are not law itself. Yep. Law itself is the Constitution. So they can get it wrong, which is what happened. Yep. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that pretty uh, pretty neat and simple one. But yeah, I would... That's it. That, that reminds me of those, you know, like, oh, if you do this one neat trick, they can't get you. Like, <laughs> yeah. I almost very silly. I almost had a different one of those for this time. Uh, maybe we'll get to that one next week in hot takes. But uh, those almost never work. No, that, that's not good. Yeah, don't. I think I mentioned this at one time before, but common law, Anglo-American common law, is pretty old at this point. There were about two thousand years. Yeah. Well, I guess technically common law dates back to Edward the First, right? Yeah, I, I believe uh, time immemorial is defined in in Britain legally as dating from the end end of the reign of, I want to say, Henry II, something like that. <laughs> but uh, there is a specific time. So a little bit for, after the common law. For time immemorial. But yeah, it's basically, you know, it basically overlaps there. But anyway, my point is that just that if you think you've found like this sort of silver bullet to just like evade 
consequences for doing something that should clearly be illegal, you probably haven't. Can't guarantee that. You know, you should always consult. Uh, you may have. Yeah. And if you really think it's a good one, give us a call. We'll give you a free consultation. You can talk to me for 30 minutes with your theory. And I, yeah. maybe it's a good one. And if it's a good one, we'll probably take your case. Yeah. So, but, but, uh, but in all likelihood, it's probably not. Yeah. Before you stake your freedom or other important things on having this magic silver bullet legal trick, you should probably talk to an attorney. Could be us, but yeah. it doesn't need to be. And by no, us, I mean uh, by us, I mean the institute, not me personally, since I'm not an attorney. But anyway, I think that will probably do it for us, though. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll listen again. Yeah, and remember, liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. <laughs> yeah. Is that our sign off today? Uh, sure. Th- well, oh, on that note, one of I think it was actually one of the king's cousins or brothers was the Duke of Orleans at the time of the revolution. And he, uh, hmm. so, you know, he was addressed as uh, Philip Orleans. He joined in with the revolutionaries, became a very enthusiastic member of the National Assembly, and he changed his name to Philippe Egalité. <laughs> um, so basically... <laughs> Philippe Equality, Phil, very good. Phil Equality, as we might say in English. Phil Equality. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that. But that's like, there's, there's this guy in, in California that's, that always runs for various, like, whether it's county commissioner or various offices like that, and his name is... On the ballot, it says, John, lower taxes, low. <laughs> I remember you telling me about that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it always runs for those offices where you never know any of the people running. Right. So, you know, I assume he thinks that he can win through people liking the name. Yeah. I don't know if he's ever won anything before. <laughs> Probably uh, not. I, I, I won't say whether or not I vote for him since it's a secret ballot and I don't have to. <laughs> but that was, I thought, an interesting strategy. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's going to do it for us. So thanks for listening. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Good night, folks. And if you can't get enough of Lex Rex Institute podcast, well, listen to the old episodes. We've already done that. We've got plenty of videos on YouTube for you to peruse. Some of them are boring. We're going to improve <laughs> them. They'll be less boring in the future. But if you can't get enough, listen to them anyway. Or you can listen to me appearing on the Kira Davis podcast from a couple of weeks ago, or this new one that I was just on today with Steve Hilton. Those should both be up. So yeah, you can get plenty of Lex Rex Institute content out there. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. Have a great evening. And we will see you folks again next week. All right. Bye.